All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the fourth day of June, 2019. And as I always like to remind you, I'm the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And you can subscribe to my newsletter, which features... Uh, a lot of very exciting junior gold stocks. You can sign up for that by going to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, or you can call our office here in New York City during normal work hours at 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. I always like to put in a plug for my friend Chen Lin's letter as well, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And for that, you go to chenpicks.com, chenpicks.com, biotechs, uh, energy stocks, and gold and silver stocks, those are the areas that Chen focuses on, and he's done, done very well over his career in those fields. And, of course, Michael Oliver as well, OliverMSA.com. We'll be talking to Michael in just a minute. I uh, do want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more, one of the more listened-to shows on the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to invite you to keep your questions and comments coming along to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com questions the number four taylor at gmail.com and we do want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable without them there would be no show today's sponsors klondike gold novo resources rn resources and strike point gold i've titled today's show will modern monetary theory or mmt for short ignite gold richard mayberry ivan bebeck and michael oliver are with me today Following the 2008-2009 financial crisis, Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke began to implement modern monetary theory, resulting in zero and even negative interest rates in some countries. With a modest recovery in place now, but with debt continuing to grow exponentially against linear GDP growth at best, the Fed has stopped MMT for now. But in preparation for the next crisis, it is ready to pile trillions more of debt manufactured dollars into the global economy. In fact, just today, Fed Chairman Powell has hinted at rate cuts if trade tensions continue to rise. And some professionals on Wall Street are even talking about as many as three more rate cuts this year yet, all part of MMT. Well, we will ask Richard Mayberry during the second half of today's show what impact that might have on our markets, the ones that we watch most closely, what impacts it might have on our society, and in general, what how it might impact Americans. Ivan Bebek, um, who is the chairman, the executive chairman of RN Resources, uh, will uh, talk to us about 
that company's exploration efforts in Peru, as well as the Nunavut, a very exciting uh, exploration project up far north uh, that is looking very promising. Uh, and uh, we'll also ask him about some other things that are going on. Uh, very interesting development, it seems, in, uh, in British Columbia uh, with its home stake uh, project up there. So uh, we'll talk to Ivan right after, uh, the, well, right after the first commercial break. But right now, I'm happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me once again. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. Always good to have you with me, and it's always good to tell our listeners, and they should really pay close attention. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. I know you'll be listening to what Michael has to say about the markets, but if you really want to take advantage of what Michael has to say and his his good work over many years of experience, uh, you might want to consider subscribing to, to his newsletter. Uh, at OliverMSA.com, and especially you gold bugs might want to take advantage of his lower price precious metals uh, newsletter, which is absolutely excellent and spot on. Michael, um, in a note to me this morning, you suggested that I should keep a close eye on the dollar in anticipation of a dollar decline. Well, it seems to me everybody's pretty complacent about the dollar. It doesn't seem to be any likelihood of a dollar decline, but are you seeing something a little different, something that's warning you that the dollar could be vulnerable in the near term? Do I have that right? Yes, you, you do. Um, the dollar has actually, uh, there was an article in the journal the other day about the uh, T-bond market and how the firm dollar is a, uh, one of the justifications for foreigners buying the T-bonds and so forth and so on. I think it's like the safety primarily, but no doubt, if you have a firm dollar and you're a foreign investor and you buy U.S. stocks or U.S. government bonds, you're reinforced by the what they call a firm dollar. In fact, the dollar's firm, all firm, uh, right now it's uh, trading about where it traded 11 months ago. In uh-huh. fact, the last August high, which is right at about 97 on the dollar index, draw a line sideways, today's low is 97. So, it, yeah, it's firm because it's boring. <laughs> It's caught in a very narrow range with a tone that feels steady. Our momentum work say, says it's highly likely to break down out of this zone of slightly upward congestion that's been prevailing for, like I said, 10, 11 months. And I think it's going to shock people because right now the dollar and its inverse, the euro, are so boring in terms of volatility and lack of real movement that everybody's ignoring it. I mean, they're seeing volatility, aggressive upside in T-bonds for obvious yeah. reasons. Uh, you're seeing now aggressive upside in gold for, again, we think obvious reasons. Uh, and you're seeing extreme volatility in the stock market down, and now you're having a, a, what I consider a flare rally that's likely to fail by next week. Uh, but you're getting volatility, getting heads turned. Yeah. Uh, the dollar is boring. And so I think that's where the next ambush is going to come, is, is, is when the dollar wakes up and, and breaks down. Uh, we've got some specific numbers that we inform our subscribers of, that aren't far below the current market. And we think that when those numbers are triggered, and we think they will be probably next week, uh, downside will pick up noticeably. And that will shock a lot of people because there is an overwhelming uh, opinion globally that the dollar is firm and safe place to be, and you know, all kinds of assumptions can be based on that assumption. Sure. And we think that's about to be overturned. Of course, that would help gold. But actually, if you stand back and look at it, since August of last year, when the dollar was 97 and it's still there, uh, in other words, it's been steady to up, let's call it, uh, gold has gained huge ground without any help from the dollar. Imagine what happens if the dollar breaks. 
gives it a little more wind at its back. And I think probably a lot of wind at its back uh, of gold. So anyway, look, watch the dollar. It's boring, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, Michael, let, let me ask you, uh, you know, what kind of a decline do you see might be possible for the dollar oh, over boy. the next six uh, months? Well, about the next, yeah. We think that by the end of the year it's possible, and we're not aggressively assertive on this. That we think the dollar could take out the low it made in early 2018. The dollar index then made a low at 88.25. So we're trading around 97. So we're talking about a 10% drop to take that out. Now, in the dollar, that's a big move. Now, oh, yeah. The stock market or something like that, it's not a big move. But for the dollar index or the euro inverted, uh, that, that's, that's a large earth-shaking move. And we think it's entirely reasonable that it's, that's where it's headed, to take out that 2018 low. Uh, and just getting there is a big deal. Uh, so well, could again, that be sleepy market? Good. Yeah, I would. I would presume that might be bearish for bonds then. Well, the it traces. might be, but I think the bonds are overwhelmingly buoyed by simply flight to safety. And if if we're right on the stock market and we we're major negative, we could get very very negative for a rapid down move. If the S and P dropped about five percent from here, and we've got some other numbers and other indices, uh, we've asserted that. The 1929 situation, technically speaking, from our momentum vantage point, the 1987 situation, were very similar from a momentum perspective long term. Right now, the S&P has the same um, metrics underneath it, and they look vulnerable, and they look like they're going to be broken. Uh, and if that occurs, therefore, any movement in the stock market to the downside could be over very quickly, as opposed mm -hmm. to a protracted multi-year thing, although that may occur too, but it could begin with a, with a huge whoosh. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've got numbers specified, but I think that kind of movement, the bonds won't care what the dollar's doing, because <laughs> the bonds will be sought after by everybody. Uh, and so will gold. Uh, yeah, Those well, I would think so. Will, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would think so. If, if the dollar loses, say, 10% of its value, then right away that sort of knocks the wind out of the, out of the Treasury market to an extent, I would think. And then well, there might it, be might be more yeah. of an inclination to move some money into gold. Yes, yes, yes. I think uh -huh. so. And uh, if you notice the tone in gold, we we of course viewed this entire intermediate trend pullback that occurred since the Jan Feb highs in gold up at the thirteen forty four was the high in February as a more or less benign waste of time. That it was oh. one of the most mild pullbacks. Uh, ever since gold got up into the mid-1300s in uh, 2016, 2017, 18, this was the mildest pullback over a protracted period of time. It mm -hmm. indicated to us that the bidding under this market, under the gold market, was firmer than it's ever mm -hmm. been before once it got up into the mid-1300s resistance. Uh, it's our view that that level at 1340, which we got to in February, will probably be seen soon, and when it is, uh, don't don't hold your breath and look for a pullback. It's likely to explode. Uh, now, this may have implications. If we're right on that, it may have implications about inverse action in the S&P and mm -hmm. also the speed of the S&P. Yeah. Um, anyway, but watch the dollar. I think it's, it's the one piece of the puzzle that hasn't come into play, and I think people will be ambushed and surprised by the direction that it takes. Mm -hmm. People aren't paying attention. Well, Michael, just with a minute left here yet then, I would think a declining dollar would be bullish for some of the other commodities as well, at least in terms of uh, a dollar denomination, right? So uh, I would think it might be bullish for silver. What about oil? Oh, yes. 
Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I think oil is still linked to the S&P now. I think copper, to some extent, is as well. Uh-huh. Our view is that silver and, and uh, gold miners will vastly outperform gold going forward. Uh, you know, over the last year or two, uh, we've wavered in the mid-1300s and 1200s in gold. They've wandered all the way back down close to their bare lows of 2015-16. Uh, but they look like they're slingshots, and that when gold turns, it gains that extra a percent above today's high and hits 1340 again. Uh, watch mm-hmm. silver and GDX, for example. They're likely to go up in percentages, double that of gold. Uh huh. Um, well, where do you think? Where bit. do you think we? What, just looking out into the future, if we break through 1340, 1350, or whatever you need to break through, where, what might the we first, uh, anticipate on the upside? Breath, I think I think gold could go to in the 1520 area before it even takes a breath. Wow. In other words, if you break through, if you touch 1340, I think the next move, that's not a big percent. That's 15, 16% or so. Yeah. Now, silver right. will do better than that, so will GDX. But I think that could happen in like a whoosh uh, within weeks um, before you even pause to take mm-hmm. your breath on gold. Mm-hmm. Again, the issue is going that extra percent above today's high, but we think that'll happen because our momentum indicators have already effectively accomplished that. It's merely a price issue now. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I think the world well, is looking at that price level because there's a trend line on the gold going back five years across all these flat highs. And every asset manager in the world can see that line. And he's, he's got to be concerned that if it hits there and goes through, he better be part of it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Well, it could be. I'll tell you, we've been waiting a long time. It's been a long time since we've seen the highs in gold back in 2011. Uh, and then the, the wretched decline and then sort of a base building period here. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if we get that kind of a move, it will be more than welcome for gold shares, no doubt about that. Uh, but I would say uh, we've certainly been waiting for it. It's not as if we, you know, we've been sitting in fat city here. So, uh, Michael, thank you very much. It's uh, thank you, Jay. Your, your comments are always always welcome, and uh, thank you for helping us stay steady during a time when it's not been so easy to remain bullish on gold. It's been very helpful to us. So, uh, thank you. We'll look to talk to you again next week. Thanks for being with us. All right, folks, uh, we do have to go to break, but don't go away, because speaking of gold stocks, we've got a real good one, one, the, one of my favorites, RN Resources, and uh, Executive Chairman Ivan Bebek will be with us right after the break, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Novo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Strike Point Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. Strike Point is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by Strike Point's largest shareholder, Ascot, Eric Sprott, and Skeena round out the other top shareholders. 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning on Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have Ivan Bebek, the Executive Chairman of R&R Resources, with me once again. Ivan has had a very successful track record, along with his partner, Sean Wallace, over the years. They've made shareholders of companies like Caden Resources and Nasanko Gold a lot of money. Ivan is a co-founder and co-chairman of another company that I expect I will be covering sometime in the near future in my newsletter called Torque Resources. And... Um, I do think that uh, anything that Ivan is involved with is worth at least taking a look at, so I hope you'll pay close attention uh, to hear what Ivan has to say today. The stock trades uh, in New York and in Toronto under the symbol AUG uh, count 94.5 million shares at about $1.70 earlier today, and haven't looked at it in the last couple of hours, giving a market cap of around $161 million in U.S. Uh, currency. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Ivan. Oh, thank you for having me here, Jake. Appreciate being back. Yeah, and I guess you're right here in my city here in New York City today uh, talking to investors, and I have an idea that may be one of the reasons your shares are a bit stronger today. You're spreading the good uh, news, no doubt. Um, you know, there's a it, lot, of, lot on the horizon, so yeah, I'm here to talk about it for sure. And I'm thinking uh, with gold picking up now, there may be a little more reception. Uh, the, the equity market's looking a little shaky, perhaps in, in the minds of some anyway. Uh, there may be people may be looking for other places to diversify, and so maybe maybe our time is is here, Ivan. Let's hope so. Um, I think it's know, over, overdue for sure, but yeah, absolutely agree with you. Yeah, um, just this morning I noticed that you put out some news on your Homestake Ridge project in British Columbia, and in, in reading it, I gather that this project may actually offer more upside exploration potential than what uh, I was expecting uh, based on earlier comments that you made. What are you and your management team thinking now about uh, Homestake Ridge? All right, so as a group, we, we like the asset initially, 1.3 million ounces of gold-silver equivalent, uh, about 7.5 grams in the Golden Triangle. And we thought, you know, can we make this bigger? And we stayed close to home to see if something was missed and there were some easy ounces to add to it. And no question, there's incremental ounces to add. But last summer, we took a much more... Uh, aggressive approach on, on finding something new. And we started going through databases and did some of our own work. And we found two new areas that have up to half a kilo silver, up to 11, 15 grams gold. And uh, these areas represent, you know, exciting targets. And, you know, most places you say, yeah, some high grade, it's, it's exciting. But the Golden Triangle, as you very well know, hosts some of the world's largest. And because we have 1.2 million ounces, 7.5 grams of high grade to start with as a deposit, Going away from the deposit, we found we might be able to double or triple that. And this is something that we wanted when we first got there. But, uh, you know, it took a couple years before we rethought our process. And, you know, being conservative with our spend last year led us to these two great areas that we'll work on this summer to a drawerity stage for next year. But it's exciting to be in the Golden Triangle with two really big shots at, at finding some really high-quality ounces. 
Yeah, and if you start out with some high high grade ounces, perhaps uh, you know incrementally you add more ounces, uh, the economics really work out well. Of course, we're way ahead of this. Way ahead of the, you're not going to be drilling yet this year yet. It's just uh, this is really Greenfield's exploration, but with a lot of promise. The way it sounds to me. Yeah, it's it's Greenfield and the right address. You know, when you look mm-hmm. for these things, Jay, you want to look for it in Nevada. You want to go look for copper gold in Peru. You want to look in you know, Red Lake, you know, in these kind of areas. But the Golden Triangle is one of the real, most robust in terms of deposits it's delivered. And so that being said, you know, yeah, it's early stage. You see some, some gold showing up and some silver showing up, but the picture's already there. We just want to know how big it could be. And, you know, new targets that are away from your deposit give you a chance to do a lot more than do the incremental. You might be able to double or triple. And that's mm-hmm. the first time we've seen this look out of the project. So we're, we're really excited about it. Yeah. Uh, last time we talked to you, um, you talked a little bit about the artificial intelligence that you're using in Committee Bay. And there's a lot of a lot of the uh, potential mineralization there is is covered by till glacial till. Uh, and you you talked a lot about the use of AI in helping you bring together a huge amount of information uh, to help you pinpoint uh, your drill targets. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Is there any chance that you might do some drilling up there this year? Sure. Um, you know, we've, we've got a bit of a rule internally, and uh, it comes down to our share price and the gold price. And if both of them are performing, you know, we're well north of $2 Canadian or gold north of 1300 we want to give a, a real serious thought at Drilling Committee Bay. So we're considering it right now, and we'll announce our plans next week. The AI, I think you hit the nail on the head. Its ability to process a large amount of data. The only thing I would add is our data was collected by a former global Newmont expert, so the quality of data is incredible. So, you know, four years of $54 million worth of work collecting data, putting it into a computer, and doing something the human brain could never do, it most certainly gave us some really robust targets. Because we're making the decision late in the year uh, to go up there, the program would be a big one, but it would have a shot to deliver two things. One, it would enhance the AI platform dramatically for targeting next year and more drilling. But number two, more importantly, it might give us the first major discovery holes out of that. So if we decide to go ahead, and the announcement should be out sometime next week, um, it would be a considerable amount of speculation could come back into our share price for Committee Bay being on deck, um, being mindful of the recent gold move, the ability of raising capital, the ability of having capital, you know, is is really what's going to help drive that decision. And for me, you know, if the drill's turning at 1325 gold, I think that's a really good thing as an investor, you know, in, in a project like that with such a cutting-edge opportunity like artificial intelligence. Yeah, uh, no doubt. Uh, well, it's, it's you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's a very, very huge project, isn't it? I mean, the land that you have up there is enormous, uh, and there's a lot of really high-grade gold up there yet. Uh, we know that because of some other discoveries. But it's uh, you know it's there obviously because it's been hard to get to and and you guys are, are going there with new technology, which is what it takes new these days. And, and the courage to go after an expensive project in a tough market, you know, with the foresight that the market's going to improve considerably. And you know the one thing we still haven't seen as investors are major high grade gold discoveries. Again, the last one I could think of is Amaruk, six million ounces of six grams per ton, which is nearby mm-hmm. us in Committee Bay in the last decade. You know, there's been mm-hmm. some incremental ounces added to good deposits, but nobody's come out with another Aurelian, 
you know, not another one of these big uh, or yeah. Martina for uh, Redback. No one's found a big one. And this project, it has, A, it's a big trend, as you pointed out, Boston to New York, 300 kilometers long. But we trained the AI off our three-blast deposit to predict the high-grade gold at a 99% efficiency. Mm. So I'm on the edge of my seat saying, hey, does this really work? If we're right, that whole belt opens up. We're not going to go test the whole belt, this program. We're going to focus on a few targets that are nearby our deposit because if we get to four or five million ounces between three-blast and one of these new targets that are nearby then you have a mine and you go the distance. So spectacular opportunity. The first look at a drill bit following up on the AI could come this summer. Um, we'll announce it next week. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit more than your typical, hey, you know, we might drill and find a gold deposit because of the AI component. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this summer yet, we could, this summer, this fall, we might get some news possibly. Um, we'll, we'll wait for oh, your... Oh, yeah, I think... You got, yeah. you, you got a press it's release a coming time. out next week on this, you think? We should have one by the end of next week, uh, revealing uh-huh. our plans, and it should um, eloquently outlay what we're going to do. And uh, but uh, right now, I think it's, it's it's a good consideration that we have in front of us uh, with current market conditions. Uh, definitely in favor of it happening. Um, capital costs would be very minimal. Um, you know, to to do a program, what we're thinking of, we're talking two million dollars ish, not five or mm-hmm. ten. So it would have no impact on our share structure. Be very minimal at best. All right. Good. Well, speaking of. Large scale. I know that's what you have in mind with your sombrero gold copper target down in southern Peru. Where does that stand? Now, the last time we talked, you were talking about the uh, some core, historical core that was drilled but never sampled because the company was looking for an iron deposit and they ignored all kinds of evidence of, of copper and maybe some gold. Uh, might we get some news on that? Is that core going to be sampled pretty soon um, and assays coming from that? Yeah, so for, for context, you know, our analog is finding another lost Bombus, which would mm-hmm. be, you know, hypothetically a $60 billion gross metal valued ore body. Um, lost Bombus sold for $8 billion in 2014. We see all the hallmarks of lost Bombus in some neighboring, mine, neighboring mines in the area. So the core that we've got, as you've mentioned, and a steel company drilled it, and they had a postage stamp claim, so they didn't have enough, even if they did go after the copper, to pursue it. Um, you know, we, we put it in the lab about a month or three weeks ago, and our first holes are due back at the end of this week, going into next week, and then uh, another batch of holes probably about 10 days later. Um, the answer that these holes are going to give us, if we see the same grade that we see on surface in the 232-meter trench, a 0.5.5% copper, if we see the same grade in the third dimension, simplistically, it would mean that the third dimension is legitimate, and it would de-risk the possibility of this being another lost bombus considerably based on the areas that we've worked, the outcropping that we've sampled, and the areas we've been able to access and sample. Um, this would be a, a huge discovery, not just for us, but for the market, that we're at the start of something like a lost bombus and, and something that the market hasn't seen. So for us, we're losing a lot of sleep because these are the last few days before the results will start coming in. And we hope to have a press release out early next week, uh, provided all as well with the results, which we don't see why it wouldn't be. And the world will get to see for the first time ever if this is the start or not to something substantial. But, uh, you know, copper, you know, by, by nature is homogenous. And what you find on surface is generally replicated subsurface. The risk you have in some copper systems is the top can be enriched and there may not be copper roots. You know, you may only have it in the oxide, but not on the sulfide. Mm-hmm. And from what we've seen so far on the project, we've seen copper occurring both in sulfide and oxide. 
and these drill results will, will give us an, a huge amount of data for it while we wait for our drill permits and other areas that we're going to be sampling on surface to double the current footprint that we have that we're planning to drill between now and when drills are actually permits are received. Could you refresh my memory in terms of the grades? You did channel sampling there. What sort of yeah. grades did you get on surface? So we got 0.5.5%. And if you look at our brochure on our website, we have high-tension hydroelectric power lines on our property with paved roads to the project and two nearby towns and access to water. And so in the copper world, just so everyone's aware, 05 or better is considered really good grade in the copper world. So anything above 05 and we're going to be really, really excited for the grades. And then the widths we're going to hope to see is, you know, some holes are quite shallow. They're only 50 meters deep, but we're going to hope to see anywhere from 50 to 100 meters. If we can see that subsurface in some of these holes, we would be ecstatic because it would give us enough of a look and confidence that we're onto one of these big systems. So it's, it's a pivotal time for the company. It will change the, the value and the rating of us considerably if the goods are there. And um, if they come back mediocre or not so great or sub-half percent copper, then doesn't mean the project's over. It just means you have to go find the high grade. And the last thing I'll put into context is these holes were never drilled targeting copper. They were mm-hmm. drilled targeting iron iron scar. Right. And so mm-hmm. that being said, you know, they're, they're nearby our trenching on surface. So they're kind of... You know, they're not the way we would have ever drilled them, but they're close enough to hopefully give us a bit of a, a look into this project. But, you know, I'd suggest everyone listening on this call look forward for news out of us in the next, you know, three or four day business days or early next week because, um, you know, it's going to be a big reveal and we'll see what happens. As, as we're waiting to see the market, we'll get to see it and uh, hopefully we're on to a world-class proper gold discovery in Perth. Are you getting a sniff of gold too here? Ivan, you've been yeah, talking about copper. Yeah, definitely gold. Um, I mean, the project has up to 193 grams gold sampled in on surface, uh-huh. right? And so the gold budget's really big. And what I mean by that is the system can produce a lot of gold. Um, right now, copper is, you know, the lead metal that we're seeing in the areas that we're trenching. I believe we had a 0.15 gold grade that went with the copper grade on the 232-meter trench. So there's a proponent of both. Um, Las Bombas and some of those major mines nearby, they have um, molybdenum that goes with the copper. And mm-hmm. between you and I, as a, as a precious metal investor myself, I'd much rather have gold to go with my copper than molybdenum. No offense yeah. to the metal, but it's obviously worth a lot more. And so, you know, it's early days to know what's going to shape out of the system, how much copper, how much gold. There is epithermal systems here as well as scarred, and there are massive mm-hmm. porphyritic dikes that we're seeing as well. So you're going to get a lot of really good things out of this project. But for now, I think look forward to a copper gold result out of these. That's what we're, we're anticipating or speculating on. All right. Uh, with just a minute left, Ivan, what are you most excited about? You have, with all you have going on in summing up here, what, what really uh, gets you excited? Drill results pending, Jay, for a massive discovery. This will be the biggest that I could be part of my career for, right? That's number one. Number two is if we get a chance to drill the AI Committee Bay, and number three is the fact that our other gold project, Homestakes, coming back to life with some big exploration looks. That's the order of what I'm excited about, and the next few months should be really, really exciting for us in a steady news flow. Well, I'll certainly be watching my inbox for news, that's for sure. Ivan, thank you so much for being with us again. All the best. And, thank you so much. Uh, we look forward to keeping in touch with your programs. All the best. Thank you very much. All the best. Thank you.
All right. Okay, folks. Well, uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Mayberry after the commercial break, and uh, he's going to talk to us about MMT, that's Modern Monetary Theory, and all the repercussions that that holds for the markets. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Richard Mayberry. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have with me once again Richard Mayberry. He's been hasn't been with us for several months, so it's really good to have him back. He is the publisher of U.S. and World Early Warning Report for Investors. Uh, he is the author of several entry-level common-sense books on United States economics, law, and history. Richard is not only a student of history, but as someone who served in the military in the past, he has a knowledge of what drives men to war and unspeakable evil deeds against his fellow man. Um, Richard is not a big fan of war, I can tell you that, but he does understand that uh, it is a condition of humankind, uh, and there's not a whole lot that, uh, uh, that, that we can do to stop it, unfortunately. It's just the way it is. You know, it's um, Ron Paul, who we've had on the show, doing his best to try to change hearts and minds, but... Uh, I, I would say without too much positive impact, unfortunately. But uh, Richard is really a good friend of mine and a person that I look up to for insights into what is happening in the financial markets as well as geopolitics. So it's always really a pleasure to have him with us. Thanks for joining me again, Richard. Uh, thanks, Jay. And, and uh, let me say um, congratulations on being one of the very few people in the news media that people can turn to to get something other than the carefully whitewashed stuff that uh, we normally are treated to. Um, I, I think uh, your alternate viewpoint is uh, extremely valuable, and thank you for putting it on the air. 
wouldn't it be good if, if Americans these days were willing to listen to different views instead of just their own or the ones they've been programmed to believe in the universities? Because I think our universities are gigantic propaganda machines, and I'm pretty sure you'd agree mm-hmm. with that. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, for every for every uh, university that teach some, teaches something about the system of liberty, there are probably a hundred that teach uh, strict socialism uh, of one brand or another. And, uh, and the kids come out of there thinking with socialist viewpoints and thinking that's the only viewpoint there is. Yeah, socialism is the anti-liberty uh, theology. Yeah. I would say it's almost a theology. And I had uh, a, mm-hmm. uh, a professor, Dr. Weicker, who uh, wrote a book called "Worshiping the State," and he talked mm-hmm. about it as being a religion, actually. And he said, you know, the Constitution mm-hmm. suggests that we're not supposed to have any. The government's not supposed to sponsor any religion, but in fact, it does when it sponsors liberalism, uh, socialism, which, of course, uh, he believes is a religion in a sense. You know. So anyway. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, because you wrote recently about modern monetary theory, and of course mm-hmm. Chairman Powell has tried to uh, to back up against that a little bit after the uh, after the massive amounts of money creation in two, starting with 2008-2009. We've had this uh, QE, um, but what could you could you explain to our listeners what modern monetary theory is, or MMT for short, and, and perhaps talk a little bit about the repercussions or the, uh, the impact that it's had on our, on our economy. Um, as far as the, the uh, effect that it's, that it's had, I think the jury's still out on that. Uh, they haven't been consciously practicing MMT uh, until recently. They just cooked it up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, maybe last year, the year before. Uh, so there's, you know, it's a, a new experiment that they're doing on us. Uh, but it actually isn't new. It's just a uh, repackaged version of Keynesianism. Yeah. And what it says essentially uh, is that as long as the consumer price index isn't climbing rapidly, then it's okay for the government to print however much money they want to print. Um, now, the, the first sticking point in that theory is that do you trust the consumer price index? Yeah. Do you really think, <laughs> do you really think it reflects how prices are doing in the economy? And I, I think uh, you have to have been born yesterday to, to believe it. Uh, the, yeah. Uh, Richard, let, know, me just, the, let, let me just interject. We're going to have John Williams, the economist, who I know you're, you're familiar with, I believe, um, the shadow statistics. And John, of mm. course, oh, yeah. believes that the inflation rate is significantly higher than what the government uh, claims it is. And he suggests because uh, if you if you just use the same yardstick as we used pre-Ronald Reagan, uh, you would mm. get something, you know, double or triple the CPI or even more than that, perhaps, uh, the CPI. So, of course, mm-hmm. if that were really the case, we would have negative growth for the last number of maybe decades even. We wouldn't even have yeah. positive GDP, but anyway. So the government cooks up and it, it, it decides how it's going to calculate inflation and a consumer price index, and it can change it from time to time. Maybe it doesn't want to pay out so much Social Security or whatever, right? So, so that's the first right. thing you're saying. We, yeah. Mm-hmm. The, government's yeah def- so- the government's definition of, of inflation is, is suspect. Right. 
Now, the reason I think they came up with this this uh, new label for Keynesianism is that they um, are running into, or they're beginning to face probably um, what's called velocity, which is mm-hmm. the speed at which money changes hands. If money changes hands quickly, it has the same effect as an increase in the money supply and prices rise because the money is facilitating more transactions and people are competing against each other very hard. Um, the, uh, the way uh, it works in reverse is that if uh, velocity falls, if people are not uh, trading very much, if, they're, if they've slowed their purchases, that mm-hmm. has the same effect as a decrease in the money supply. Mm-hmm. It's deflationary. And the really big issue that nobody talks about is that the Federal Reserve, in fact, no part of the government has any control over that. Uh-huh. Velocity does whatever it's going to do. It's, uh, it responds to fear and, and optimism. When people are fearful, they want cash, they stop buying things. When they're optimistic, they spend their cash and uh, prices go up and it has the same effect as uh, increase in the money supply and, and the economy booms. Um, and what I think what's happened is that, that it's all, it, velocity has always been a, a really big problem, but in recent years the government has been, become so powerful, uh, so much more powerful, uh, that um, these waves of fear and optimism are much stronger and uh, you know the the Federal Reserve can't adjust the money supply in accordance with these waves of fear and optimism because these waves can just change overnight. Mm-hmm. They can't change the money supply overnight, so they can't respond fast enough to the the money supply or, or to the velocity changes. So I think they have given themselves with this modern monetary theory idea, have given themselves to just uh, permission to just keep on printing money. Um, mm-hmm. That's the only thing in which they have very much uh, faith, is that they can pump money into the economy and make things boom for a while. And that's why I'm sure John Williams is saying the consumer price index is, is really uh, fake, because uh, they don't dare let us know that uh, their injections of the money are driving up prices pretty seriously now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, the, essentially modern, modern, modern monetary theory is just another branch of socialism. <laughs> yeah. Right, for sure. It, it says the government should control all of our behavior, all of our economic behavior. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess that makes a certain amount of sense, then. If velocity is slowing down, which is, as you say, the same thing as reducing the money supply, what they're trying mm-hmm. to do is offset... Uh, declining velocity by yeah. printing more money. But here's the thing, Richard. I've seen M2 velocity, the Federal Reserve reports that I've seen, it's been in decline significantly, even though they printed a huge amount of money uh, since 2008, 2009. Velocity has been generally in a very significant decline. And I'm wondering if that might have something to do with just the fact that a growing number of middle um, middle-class Americans are, are being pushed down into the lower echelons. They don't have enough money. They, 
I mean, the fear aspect, if you don't have enough money to pay your rent, put food on the table, that might be a good enough reason not to spend your money recklessly, right? Correct. So um, a lot of people... I, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Your thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, um, you don't, the thing is, we don't know what these officials are thinking. We know these public pronouncements that they make, and we know yeah. the statistics they give us, but what are they thinking? We don't know right. that, and we never will know that. Right. So the, the, probably the one thing we can be certain about their thinking, and, which means we're, we can be certain about their changes in interest rates and money supply, is that they change their minds. I, I would imagine they are so scared and they are, they are so worried about their inability to make their th- theories work Mm-hmm. that all of them go from one week to the next changing their minds about what they ought to do. Uh, and, and now, you know, we're beginning to be very cognizant of the fact that the U.S. presidency is uh, so powerful that the president all by himself can just tweet something and change the world economy. He, he can create... Um, a wave of fear or a, a wave of optimism that will change the speed at which money changes hands. Uh, and we saw a test of this um, just a few, oh, I don't know what it was, a week ago or so ago, um, when he came out and uh, just reversed course on the trade war and decided mm-hmm. that in, instead of kissing and making up with the enemies, um, with Washington's enemies, that he was going to accelerate. He's going to uh, make the trade war worse. And wham, you know, the stock market gets gets hit with this wave of fear caused by that, and it falls, and billions and billions of dollars of savings disappear. Just from with a simple tweet. tweet. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, who wouldn't be scared under these circumstances that a guy yeah. can just tweet a dozen words and change the world economy? It's crazy, absolutely insane. Nobody should have that kind of power. But the president does. And I'm not just blaming Trump. All presidents have that kind of power these days. It doesn't matter who you elect. He's going to be an emperor of the world. Uh, And if you've got one guy making the decisions for billions of people, those billions of people are going to be scared. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, so you can kind of see why, but it seems to me that this is a problem that's feeding on itself. The more they print, uh, you know, that hidden inflation that we talked about takes away Mm -hmm. the purchasing power of humans, of of middle-class people shoving them down into the ranks. We have a a thinning middle class and an increasing Mm -hmm. number of people at the bottom. And they have, and they're not able to be optimistic because their real life situation doesn't allow them to be. And mm-hmm. so you sort of have a spiraling down situation. And here's the thing, Richard. I wonder what your thoughts are on this. You know, in 2008, 2009, like some other previous declines in the equity markets, we started to have, and the credit markets. You have a situation in which, um, well, the U.S. dollar is, you know, more debt. It's the world's reserve currency, so. There's lots of debt money out there, and when the system goes into reverse, that is, when the equity markets start and the equity and the uh, and the debt markets start to decline, the the uh, the margin clerk calls for the calls the loan in, and people have to sell what they're able to sell, not necessarily what they want to sell, 
And so that can kind of feed on itself in reverse, too. So do you worry, as I do at least, I, I'm, I'm concerned that if we start seeing a real equity meltdown again, which Michael Oliver, who was on our, our guest in the first segment, thinks we're due for it, if we start to see another decline like 2008, 2009, we might be looking at a real deflation or a, a decline at least in the price of a lot of goods and services for a while, which isn't a bad thing necessarily if you have money, but most people won't. Uh, yeah, right. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, um, um, I think what you're describing is, is a definite possibility, and if Mr. Trump keeps pushing his trade war, it's going to happen. Now, I think that he has been told that by his advisors. Uh, my guess is that they told him, you better have the economy looking good before the elections or you're going to yeah. lose to the socialists. Yeah. So whatever, whatever feelings you have about um, tariffs and the trade war and all, you better get them out of your system right now because if you continue with this till the end of the year, um, we're going to have socialists in the White House. So I think that um, what's going on right now is he is getting this, the trade war out of the system. He's, he's playing the last moves in his game. And my guess is, I can't tell what the man's thinking, but my guess is that as we get toward the end of the year, he'll ease up and suddenly the trade war will just go away. But if it doesn't, um, then the forecast of a crash in the stock market and a really severe recession or depression is very plausible because that's what trade wars tend to produce. Look back in history. The, the worst depression in, in American history in the 1930s was triggered off and made worse by a trade war, the old Smoot-Hawley tariffs yeah. that were levied back then. Uh, so... Um, I mean, the man just does not know economics. That's all there is to it. Now, I, I have to give him credit. He did wonderfully with the reduction in uh, the regulations and taxes, and that kicked off a really great boom. But now he's, he thinks he understands economics because he did that, I guess. And so he's going further. And um, it uh, reminds me of a World War II movie called A Bridge Too Far. Uh, the Allies extended themselves too far. They went where they shouldn't have gone, and they lost uh, that terrible battle. It was called Operation Martyr Garden. Um, and he, and he, what he's doing reminds me exactly of that. He's going a bridge too far. He's in territory he doesn't understand, and he is. Re- I, I, let me tell you this: um, this morning I, I was reading the Constitution, and it's very clear. I think it's. Uh, uh, Article 9 of the main body, mm-hmm. it, it clearly states that there will be no trade war between the states. The states mm-hmm. cannot levy tariffs on each other. Why would the founding fathers do that? Why would they put that in the Constitution? If tariffs are a good thing, why did they say you can't do it under any circumstances? Because they knew more economics than Trump knows, and they realized what would happen if the, ter- the states started levying tariffs on each other. America would not be this mighty wealthy country that's the envy of the world, or at least it was for a while. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I would urge everybody, get out your Constitution, look at that, that uh, article. Article 9. And, and see, yeah, see there that the, the Founding Fathers forbade 
the states to levy tariffs on each other. Well, you know, why did they do that? Because the mess that we've got right now between Washington and Beijing, uh, and Mexico too now, uh, is proof of, of uh, you know, of what they understood. Uh, you're going to get a depression if you do that. So that's where we are right now. There's a lot of people scared to death, and justifiably so. Well, that I think guy, you're right. Yeah, that, if, he, if he continues, he's going to cause so much fear, there will be a plunge in, in velocity like there was in the Great Depression. Yeah. We're all going to be in a lot of trouble. Well, and, the, and it's, of course, it's uh, potentially much worse because of the amount of debt that's in the system now that wasn't there uh, earlier, too. So yeah, right. uh, there's one issue that we won't have time to talk about today, but I'd like to talk to you about it either privately or on the air. And that mm-hmm. is, uh, of course, the founders didn't have the world's reserve currency at that time. It's uh, one theory that seems very real to me is that the U.S. had to orchestrate massive trade deficits in order to make sure that there were enough dollars flying around the world. And we got rid of our middle class jobs. We, we sent manufacturing overseas. And we, of course, we, we, we finance NATO. Uh, we give money to countries all the time. Uh, and, you know, all these grants, these, uh, these big loans, uh, not loans even, just pure money um, gifts that we give to countries around the world try, probably trying to buy off their politicians. Mm-hmm. But the argument that uh, Hugo Salinas Price has made is that, in fact, we had to create – we had to hollow out the middle class and these middle class jobs – and so he sees Trump as trying to reverse that. But, of course, at this point in time, we're the, the leading power in the world still. And we have the world's mm-hmm. reserve currency. It's almost like pulling the rug out from underneath the thing that Trump's trying to do. could be disastrous, I think. I think you're right about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, when, when we departed from the gold standard, boy, that was a real was catastrophe. Disastrous. Yeah, uh, absolutely. There's been nothing but economic chaos ever since. Well, Richard, uh, in your in your April May issue, uh, when you talked about MMT, uh, you know you were, you were telling people that probably the best thing to do we can we can count on a massive amount of monetary debasement, mm-hmm. uh, and so you know buy real things like real estate, uh, fine art, antiques, raw materials, raw material stocks, and so forth. So mm-hmm. you're really seeing a debased currency. So buy things that are real that can't lose their value as the guys print money. Uh, you said MMT was the fifth reason. Uh, with just about two minutes left, can you talk about there were other four reasons previously? What were those? What were some of the other reasons anyway? What are some of the other reasons? What are some of the other damaging uh, policies that, that are being put in place that, are, that, that require us to buy real things? Oh, geez. I, I wish you'd warned me. I, I can't okay. remember what I wrote. Well, that's okay. Uh, I, I, um, I, you know, this is the reason people should buy Richard Mayberry's early warning report. Uh, and, and I threw that. I threw Richard a curveball, and I didn't mean to do that. I should have forewarned you. I would be in the same same shape if someone asked me questions about something I wrote two weeks ago. So uh, my apologies for that, Richard. But I mean, it's obviously military. I mean, we're going to be spending money like mad for the for the military. For one thing, we don't have the money. Yeah. I'm, I'm right. guessing probably uh, the. The aging population, uh, the amount of money that's going to have to be spent, the declining number of people in the workforce, decline, uh, uh, yeah. a surging well, let, number let of people. Point out one, let yeah. me point out one thing. You, you, you jogged my memory on the, on the military. 
um, the military has two jobs. One is to protect the country, and the other is to maintain Washington's global empire. Right. And nobody ever talks about that second one, but that's the really expensive one that takes huge amounts of, right. of mainly ships, but a lot of other stuff. Well, they don't have enough aircraft carriers to maintain the empire. Right. Now, they got enough to protect the country, no problem there. But right. they don't have anywhere near enough to protect the empire, to keep their control of other countries. And right now, you know, when this idea of having a global empire came up at the end of World War II, they had 105 aircraft carriers. Now they've got 11, and most of those are so worn that about half of them are out of service at any given time. All right, Richard. Yeah. We're going to have to leave it. We're going. We're going to have to leave it go at that. Um, we are okay. out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with us again. Um, obviously, we need to have you back again. So, uh, <laughs> thanks so much for your insights. Always appreciated. Well, folks, that okay. is all the time we have this week. As I mentioned, John Williams will be with us next week of, of uh, Shadow Stats. Also, Gene Epstein, formerly with Barons, will be with us, uh, and Michael Oliver again as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 